am I late? I feel like I'm late. I feel like I'm way, I'm, I'm just time disoriented. If I sound out of breath, it's because I just come, I just came running, running up the stairs to, to make sure I wasn't late. I was convinced I was. And according to the clock, I'm not, but you're going to have to deal with me sucking air for 20 more hot seconds before we get started. I hope you're doing well. I hope things are, are going as well as they might go on a particular day like today. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One of, one of those things, you know? So how about, how about we get started? Shall we? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's get started. Possibly. Where's my button? All right. Just remember what I've taught you. So, wow, that was an abrupt cut. Sorry about that. Hi, how are you? It's been a while. It's, it's nice to see you again. Um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of chaos in the day is never a bad thing, but here we are together again for who knows how long. Let's see if the software holds up this time. Uh, hi, I'm John. Uh, I help people write better. Uh, this is, what is it? This is the writer's chat for December the 12th. Hi. And, um, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's, let's screw on heads on straight. And you want an opening? Should we do an opening? Guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, thinkers, reporters, journalists, uh, freedom analysts, anti-fascists, uh, anybody who's ever looked at a, a good meal and wondered, gosh, I hope there's enough for seconds for tomorrow. Uh, people who say they're going to do a thing at a certain time and then actually surprisingly do that thing at that time. Anybody who's ever uh, tried a new recipe and had it turn out okay. Anybody who's ever questioned the giant SEO filled novel that precedes any kind of recipe blog. People who own uh, hats that they think are just really nice hats. And, uh, anybody, you know what, anybody who's ever spent a lot of time staring at things when they know they should be doing something else. And of course the comrades, well, here we are again, doing, uh, doing what we do, doing how we do it and hoping that the twine tin cans and duct tape that hold everything together continue holding everything together fun good times if you have no idea what this is this is your chance as a writer to ask all kinds of questions about writing editing publishing marketing querying book deals audiobooks uh anything to do with anything written 
really. And this is my chance to help get you some answers. So, hello. Ready to do this? I got 13 questions. 13 questions plus the questions of anybody here in chat. Hi, chat. And hello, YouTube in the future. Uh, shall we get started? I think we should get started. Let's do it. Question number one. How do I co-write with another author? I used to really, really look down at co-writing. Like really, really. Because it, it seemed destined to fail in every case of every co-authorship I've ever talked to. It is uh, remarkably, remarkably hard to do because you're going to, you're going to have to deal with a couple different things that you need to be aware of right up front. Item number one, uh, you're going to have to be aware that the two of you might have two totally different work schedules. So it might be really hard to coordinate when you're going to do the thing you're trying to do. And that can really be a huge impediment when it comes to trying to have deadlines, trying to announce things at certain times, trying to get on the same kind of work page uh, as opposed to anything else. Syncing your schedule or at least coming to some regular consistency might be a better word is super helpful when it comes to setting up how you're going to work with somebody else. Here's the second thing, though, that you might want to think about when it comes to um, co-writing you, the two of you, or the three of you, or the five of you, or however many people you might have differing discipline levels. You might have differing levels of how you do what you do. Somebody might see this as kind of a, oh, I'll do it when the wind blows and the stars align. And, uh, you know, when it's no big deal and I just have some time to kill and somebody else might be looking at this as, a way to fulfill a dream, fulfill something substantial. And they're much more committed than somebody else. Getting th Navigating that conversation in a serious, meaningful way, I think is critical to working with somebody else. And I think, honestly, it's the reason why most dual co-authorships fail. Because eventually somebody realizes that this turns into a job pretty quickly and other people don't want it to. And then everything just kind of falls apart from there. And, you know, yeah, we get this blanket of excuses like, oh, well, you know, I got this job. I got kids. I got a, I got bills. I got other shit to do. And it's, it's easier to, um, like, find reasons not to write than it is to make time to write. So people eventually fall off the face of the earth promising, oh, I'll get serious, promising, oh, I'll get back on track. And they, they never really do because when confronted with the potential of something serious, their first choice is to run away because rejection is scary because failure is scary because they feel under supported or unequipped. And, and that's, that's a fixable thing. But in order to do that, you have to really be honest with yourself about where you're at and where you want to be. And not a lot of people are willing to do that beyond that. Once you kind of grapple with those things, sitting down and writing in a organized way, writing in, in a way that, you know, doesn't necessarily divvy up the labor equally. If somebody is fundamentally better at something than somebody else, by all means, pick up and run with it. But you should know that from a co-author editorial kind of side of things, the thing to think about when you're dealing with another person is that the two of you might not sound the same in how you write. 
you have one voice, they have another, and you're putting a lot of responsibility into your editing or your editor in order to homogenize everything and make it sound like it's just one person. That's, it's not hard to do. I mean, it, it's time consuming. It can be difficult if the things are, if the two people involved are wildly different, but it's fixable. It's manageable. You can, you can shortcut and kind of round the edges off on somebody's writing. Whereas, you know, you're promoting things in other person's writing to sort of find the average of the two voices, but it is something really worth considering. And honestly, I'm going to ask you why you want to do this. Not just like why you want to write a book. That's, that's different. Why work with this person? Because you are going to run into a situation where maybe there's going to be some tension between the two of you. That's, that's something to really consider because if it's your bestie, bestie friend in the whole widest, widest world, this, this might be difficult for the two of you and your friendship might change as a result. And that can be difficult for people to navigate. It's, you don't have to be best friends. You can just be two people doing a project, but at the same time, it's something to really consider that you're about to be in very intimate emotional space with another person making something up and, and that can, that can be tense. So be advised and be considerate and be careful. And I hope it works out for you one way or the other. On we go. Question two. Sorry dust in throat. Question number two, I want to memorialize a family dog in my book. Is that bad? No, first of all, not bad. I think it's a great thing. Go memorialize your dog, your goldfish, your grandma, your sibling, your parent, whomever go stick them in a book, do it well or not, you know, like positively or not. Uh, go for it. Why not? How do I do it without making them the dog a speaking character. Well, there's, there's loads of ways to do it. You're, <coughs> oh, excuse me. There's loads of ways of, of, of memorializing a dog or really a person without making them a speaking character. You don't, you don't, how do I say this? You don't get more memorial points for making them a point of view character or making them very central to the story. Like just having them in the story at all and having them be recognized or named or, or, like referenced in some concrete way, as opposed to remember grandma in this abstract way. But by calling attention to the dog, just existing and saying that the dog is there and then saying what you want to say about the dog, you know, spot was always the best dog and spot now lays on the, the, the corner of the room next to the heating duct, the way spot always used to in real life, something like that, where you have a positive memory or a positive association with the dog is plenty. You don't have to have like, here's a chapter from Spot's point of view about the, the romance novel we're in. Cause that's funny. And, and maybe, yes, maybe the dog did constantly interrupt your intimate liaisons with others, but you don't have to recreate that in text for that dog to be memorialized. You're, you don't need to put a spotlight on the dog in order to, highlight the fact that this was a good dog and it's worth a tribute of some kind. Just you can call attention to it positively. You can mention and reference the dog just being present in the story. Make it a, you know, animal sidekick does not mean animal point of view. It just means 
the dog goes with me. I take the dog for a walk. I often, you know, there's a scene with the dog where it's, you know, the character feeling their feelings and how they're expressing their frustrations, their sadness, their irritation. They're, I don't know, playing catch with the dog in the backyard to kind of get some breathing room from the argument they just had in the previous chapter. Any opportunity for you to highlight the dog's existence in a fiction capacity, in a fictive capacity, is fine. You don't have to always make them a speaking character. You can. If you do, by the way, make them a speaking character, please don't make them like mega omniscient because that's that's just going to be weird for your story. And don't do it. If you're going to commit to it, commit to it and treat it like any other point of view character. Don't just do like, here's the special spot chapter, because that's going to be real weird. Do it more than once, probably more than twice to be safe. But you, you can do it, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't. Most people, when they have a talking animal of some kind, they usually use it to either snark, like your dog gets all the quips. Or they use it to highlight how stupid another point of view character is. I am the very smart dog. I speak with a bit of an accent. Whereas the regular characters are kind of an idiot. And they, they do that to highlight or what they think is highlighting the dimensionality of the characters they're creating. While also just having some good old darn fashion fun. Which is not. It's irritating. It's sort of like having a really smart mouth kid in your story. The, the other thing people do with a point of view animal character is use it to shortcut the plot. Like the, if you have a, I don't know, a talking chimpanzee, you can use that chimpanzee to climb into spaces and bypass the traps that our spy is currently being, you know, imprisoned by. You, you don't want to create a character, let alone a point of view character, just to shortcut the story you've set up. So I don't think the dog needs to be a speaking character in order to be memorialized. I think you can just have good dog memories mentioned in the book. I think that can be enough. Great question. On we go. Question number three, how can my climax develop my theme? Okay. Let's, let's break this down into its pieces. So your theme is the lesson or idea you want your reader to walk away with. They read your book and they say, ah, this is a story about, uh, family. This is a story about believing in yourself. This is a story about uh, defining your own independence in a world that always tells you to conform. Whatever, whatever the, this is a story about dot, 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 whatever that thing is, that's your theme. And don't confuse theme for plot. It's not the same thing. Theme is a lesson you want the reader to walk away with and install in their own life. Plot is a series of conflicts that characters do. Your story's climax should not necessarily always has to be, but should be completely indicative of an instance where the theme matters. So if your theme is believing in yourself, the, the climax of the story should be a situation where the character in order to succeed and accomplish things needs to try and believe in themselves. If your theme is, uh, don't give up, your climax needs to be a situation where the character is challenged to give up, but then chooses not to. In that way, when your character facing the climax, facing their big conflict, facing a big challenge, makes a conscious choice to change their behavior, change their actions, or change something from how it was to how it is now, 
that transformation is going to develop the theme and be sort of the big thing that everybody remembers. We remember, you know, the crane kick in the karate kid. We remember the triple deke in the mighty ducks. We remember, you know, um, smacking the, the witch King in the face with the mace. We, we don't necessarily remember a great deal about, Oh, well, and then the character moved this, you know, picked up that, tankered or, Oh, the, you know, the other character went over here and opened up their briefcase. The small things that illustrate your theme matter, but your climax is a real big stage and a real big spotlight to illustrate that theme more clearly. Take advantage of it. Now I said should in terms of how often you do this and, and whether or not it's an always kind of thing. And yeah, there's going to be exceptions. There's going to be times and stories where it's not the climax that develops your theme, but it's the buildup to the climax that develops your theme or that you, one of your themes, because you can have more than one theme. One of your themes doesn't really fit the climax, but it fits the subplot and that's fine. But by and large, it is a real safe play, a real good idea to take the theme of your story and have it go through, pass through, be lensed by, be examined by the climax. It helps the story feel way more cohesive and way more organized. Even if it's not an action beat, even if we're not blowing anything up or, you know, fighting a giant robot or anything like that, the, the way things are set up gives the theme a chance to really shine by creating an example where the theme matters. That's the big takeaway here for climaxes and themes. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody here in chat about anything, any, anything? I realize as I look down, I am covered in dust. I picked up a box to move it and it had been sitting there. I thought not very long. But I picked it up and I am now just like taking mass amounts of like giant dust bunnies off my sweater. Today's tea, I'm so glad you asked. Today's tea is Irish mint. Um, it tastes a little like mouthwash, just a little bit. But um, it's also incredibly caffeinated and I really need that today. So um, it's also, it's not very strong. Like I've made stronger tea for chats. But it's not bad. It's minty. Um, it's okay. Am I a loose leaf? Now we are asking the serious questions. Am I a loose leaf or tea bag tea person? Yes, both. Um, most of the teas I have right now are loose leaf, but um, I'll use tea bags. I, I don't hate teas. I well, it's not true. I am picky about teas in the sense that there are some teas I just try once and never again. The stuff with cinnamon in it, I tend to avoid. I don't like cinnamon so much, but um, I'm mostly a loose leaf guy. I tend to buy in bulk and I tend to find a thing I like and then buy a lot of it, which is often a source of great tension for people around me who want me to diversify or have options or you know, be a little bit more flexible. And I don't really give a shit because I like what I like and it's not hurting anybody. And I'm the only one who drinks it. So let me have what I like. But I, I, I grew up on tea bag tea and there are still times and places where a tea bag is great. But mostly during the day, loose leaf tea. 
Other questions? Other non-tea questions? Shall we keep going? Let's. Question number four. What is it about the pro here to do a job trope that you like? Do I have any poetry tips? I do have poetry tips. Let me do the poetry tips and then we'll come back over here to question number four. Poetry tip. Hmm. How do I say this? Tip number one for poetry. Do not overthink it. Um, poetry, particularly modern contemporary poetry, has a uh, an expectation to it that it's very like artfully crafted in the fewest number of steps. Like every word has to have this tremendous meaning and, and each, each, everything, each letter, each syllable, each word has to be this, you know, this incredibly incisive and perfect thing. And that leads an awful lot of poets I know to really, really like get in their own way. Oh, I, I have to have, you know, let's say four syllables. And then they, they give themselves an aneurysm trying to come up with four syllables don't overthink it. Don't try and force it to demonstrate that you're smart enough or good enough or anything like that. If it says what you want to say, let it, let it be. Don't poke it with a stick to over-engineer it. It's not going to really help you. That said, poetry tip number two, you can totally have first drafts of poems. Like, I, I think a lot of non-poetry writers think that poems are just sort of produced. Like I wrote a poem and, and I, you know, you sign your name to it or whatever, you, you give it a title and then you're done. And then you go over there and do like another poem and that's it. And it just, it just comes out fully formed and like we're getting it from a vending machine or something. And, and it, it doesn't, and, and you can write some poems that are just first drafts. You can also write some poems that, you know, are nice, but they're not your best. I don't always know if the rules for those things are universal. I, it's not like every poem has to have this and every poem has to have that. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think it was very true to begin with, but when I was in school learning about poetry, we, we got a lot of hard and fast, do this, don't do that rules, which seemed weird to me because, um, I thought poetry was a little bit more loosey goosey in terms of its sort of connectivity with emotion and feeling. I think, I think, well, I think it, I think they made hard and fast rules because it's easier to teach hard and fast rules than just sort of let an old hippie come into a college classroom and, and talk in artsy abstract circles for 45 minutes. That said, um, That said, there's nothing wrong with a poem that runs long. I, I feel like a lot of poets tend to think in terms of length as like the second criteria. The first one being like, I have to say something. I have to evoke a, an emotion. And the second thing is I have to do it in a small amount of space and like a minimalist kind of way. And I, I don't think you need to. You can. Sure. Absolutely. You can. But. I don't think you need to go out of your way to try and say the perfect thing in the fewest number of steps. I think some poems are just 
long in the same way that some blog posts are long in the same way that some chapters are long. I think the act of expression doesn't concern size, if that makes sense. In the same way that like abstract painting doesn't necessarily have a particular criteria. It can just be a thing beyond that. Poetry is incredibly subjective, and it's one of those things where it's like, look at this particular poem written by this particular person at this particular time. I think that's a lot easier to get critical and decisive about. I think that's a case where you can be like, here's how to strengthen this poem. Here's how to make this one better. I don't think it's universal. I don't think the advice I would give you is the advice I would give the poet to your left. I'm sorry I'm a little scant on poetry. I don't honestly have as much poetry experience as I have for fiction, so I'm 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 running a little lean on tips. I'm sorry. If I think of more, I'll throw them in, but at the moment, yeah, that's where I'm at. On to question 4. What is it about the pro here to do a job trope? That's a great trope. It's one of my favorites that you like. And what can we learn from them? The pro here to do a job trope, just so we're clear, is usually um, it's usually male. It's usually a guy who shows up into a situation to resolve a thing. And then that, that whole thing becomes more complicated, um, whether that's the detective being brought in on a case or the corporate fixer getting assigned to a problem or the analyst who discovers some kind of great scandal or shock or oh my god thing. You'll see this in, and again, it's it's mostly male. It doesn't have to be. It's just that when it's often non-masculine characters doing it, it's played for hyperbole. So let's let's talk examples to better illustrate this so I'm not sounding so jargony and abstract. Something like Michael Clayton, something like uh, Jack Ryan, the Tom Clancy novels. That's a pro here to do a job. That's a that's a guy who comes in and and deals with the situation, and then the situation itself seems to be bigger than they expected. This is also true for detective fiction or um, sort of legal thriller, lawyer in over their head fiction, where they think the case is this, but then the case turns out to be you know something else entirely. When they do this, when, when you do that with a male, kind of a male-centric structure, that's a male protagonist, maybe a male antagonist, maybe a male secondary character, it, it gets very boxy. It gets very rigid and a little too over-organized. When you do, for whatever reason, when, when published, and I, I can't say this is universal because it's not the author's issue, it's the, the way th- authors are influenced. When it's framed around a female presenting character or female identifying character. You end up in kind of like soap opera territory as if the woman isn't expected to be capable of being the pro here to do a job. And you end up having to do these sort of like wild, crazy plots in order to justify what in a male character would not be questioned. Example, you, you could have, George Clooney be Michael Clayton and everybody would be like, yeah, that makes sense. He's a guy of about that age doing roughly that stuff. And I, he, he gives off that vibe or that presentation of yes, that that's what a guy in that position would look like. That's what he would do. But when you look at something with a female lead like scandal, 
which is functionally also a pro there to do a job. Scandal is a soap opera. It shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be, but it is. Why is that? Well, because, okay, there's a number of factors. It's, it's design. It's it's designed to draw in viewers at a certain hour on a certain day from a certain production company that's designed to develop soap operas. It it aims at an audience that's primed for soap operas, given other expectations. But from a narrative structural standpoint, I think there's some sexism baked in there that you have to kind of um, you have to kind of make it acceptable for a female character to be equivalent to a male character which is stupid because every character is a character and you don't need to like add extra bolstering to, to justify the existence of a female character. Would Mackenzie, Emily Mortimer from the newsroom fall under this trope? (sighs) Kind of. Yeah. Because she comes in to fix the newsroom and then sort of sets Jeff Daniels off on his path to go, to go do whatever. If, if it were the other way around, if you were to gender flip them and have her be the lead anchor and him be the producer, yes, it's less so with her. Um, she, it, it works. She's a secondary character. She's a, um, she's not a protagonist. She's a, she's the closest you get to a major secondary character. I guess you could argue in the second season, she's a deuteragonist. She's an equal POV character. But um, she's mostly relegated to a subordinate role because it's a very clear pecking order in terms of what character we're following and why we're following them. But kind of also, hello, hi, how are you? Hope you're well. Um, what do I like about this trope overall? Um, no matter what character is doing the, doing the job and, and here to do whatever, you get an immediate sense of stakes. You get an immediately sen- uh, immediate sense of like, here's the problem is we've come to understand it. And the problem is just at the edge of the character's comfort or capacity. It's going to be hard for them to do this job. It will push them as far as they can be pushed comfortably. If it were easy, it wouldn't be much of a story. So we've, we've raised the difficulty to just the point where the character has to struggle a little bit. And then when we find out that there's way more to the story, we take the character way out of their comfort zone in order to have them accomplish stuff. We take them way out of their skill base to have them accomplish stuff. And it becomes this, this sort of potentially bold story effort where somebody who's in over their head has to work a lot harder. And ideally, they, they win in the end. I like that. Uh, I like that sensation because that's a sensation. That's a, that's a set of feelings I strongly identify with. And I think it makes for a really, really engaging reading or engaging viewing because you see it, you, you're always driven to that point where the question is asked, how are they going to get through this? How are they going to deal with this? And I, I think that's a really good question upon which to build a story. What can we learn from this trope? Those stories by default are incredibly well organized. They have to be this beat to this beat, to this beat, to this beat, then this, then this, then this, then that happens. This event happens, then that event happens. And it, it kind of stacks up sequentially, like going up a staircase, one stair at a time. And then when we reach a moment of crisis or conflict, the story takes uh, a fairly proportional, but you know, radical change. We thought it was, you know, this much I'm putting my fingers together and that's like 
two inch kind of block, you know, like just kind of open my fingers a little, but then all of a sudden it turns out to be this huge thing spread my arms way, way far apart. And, and that disorientation is kind of rolls and accrues over the course of story. It helps us manage things. So if we were to assign numbers to this, you know, we have a nice orderly progression of we're at uh, and we, we were going to rate complexity of story from one being a not a big deal who gives a shit to a 10 being this major, massive, like mega involved, hyper complicated thing. We have a nice like three, three, three. Then we go to four, 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 and then we go to five. And then all of a sudden we go to seven and oh my God, a seven. And then maybe we hit the climax with an eight and then we come back down to seven and we go back down to six and then five and then four. And then we wrap up our story. It's nice and, and metronomic and it ticks things off and it advances in not necessarily expected ways, but in reasonable ways. All of a sudden it's not like, hey, we're just two lawyers trying to win our first case against the big giant corporation and then robots attack. Like it never gets weird like that. And I think that's a real asset here. Great question. On we go. Question number five. What's the difference between a character making a small or a large decision? Okay, this one gets a little messy, so stick with me on this. The size of a character's decision should be built on a couple different factors. First is going to be the expected desired goal. I want to do or have or get X, whether that's something like, objective like i want you know um i want a bottle of water or i want a soda out of that machine or something all the way up to something more abstract like i want this person to tell me that they love me the goal is going to determine how the character goes about getting it and we're going to work backwards from our goal because our goal is what we, the author, decide it's going to be. The reason why the person is doing whatever they're doing, they have a goal in mind. So we start with the goal. You nail down the goal and then you figure out what the character's got to do in order to get that goal. And if the actions the character has to take are small in scale, meaning like they're using their hands they don't have to go very far like it's not a big deal to them they just have to fish in their pocket for their keys and they can drive the car away or they they're already in the space with you know they're in a library they're looking for a book that's not a terribly difficult thing so we're when we're talking about small decisions leading to reasonable goals we're talking about the amount of effort and the particular skills involved and how comfortable the character is with that skill if in order for me to get a bottle of water, all I have to do is get up and walk over to the little fridge and take a bottle of water from the little fridge in the office, all of those skills, the walking, the opening the fridge, the grabbing the bottle, the closing the fridge, the walking back to the desk, those are all things I do all the time. They're not difficult for me. That is a small decision. When the decisions increase in difficulty or increase in uh, complexity or increase in conditionality, meaning in order for me to do a thing, five other things have to happen and I can't control any of them. You see this in like, my best example for this would be like sports playoffs. This team will make the playoff. If that team loses, that team ties and this team loses. 
that that's conditionality. The idea that things outside my control have to happen in a certain way or number of ways in order for me to get what I want. As conditionality and complexity increases, instead of if we're not talking about bottles of water, but we're talking about, uh, I have to perform brain surgery in the dark, all of a sudden things get way more complex. And if I don't have a skill or set of skills or set of tools and skills to match it, to be able to accomplish it, the harder it gets, the more the decision to do it should be because it's outside my wheelhouse. It's outside what I'm used to. It's just hard. The tricky thing here for, for writing is what do you do when your character's using skills they already have, but the thing they have to do is a big deal. The, how am, and, and that's really talking about importance. How important is this thing, this action in a scene, how important it is to the story does not determine the size of the decision it's supposed to be. I think a lot of writers tie those two things together because it makes sense. It's a big decision. So it's a big deal. And I get it. It makes sense in some way, but you've got to remember that the, the summary or the summation of a thing in terms of its importance is always done in context. Because if we go back to my example of getting a bottle of water from the little fridge over there, that's it, it, depending on context, it's either a no brainer. I'm going to do it. You know, the minute I'm done this chat, walk over there, grab it and go back to work. Or if it's, you know, I've been struggling in 110 degree Fahrenheit heat and I'm slowly melting and I've, you know, broken both my legs and I've had to crawl across the house to get it. That bottle of water, although it is a small decision, it's a small set of actions has huge contextual importance. Do not, do not misvalue the context here when you're trying to have a character make a small decision or a large decision but they're all going to be predicated on skill. They're all going to be predicated on goal and it's all based in expectation. I think it's supposed to go a certain way. So I treat it and act in a certain way. I don't know because I don't have foreknowledge, so I can only rely on my expectation. And when that expectation comes out the way I thought it does, well, great. It's not a big deal. I turned, I threw the light switch and the light turned on. Yay. But when it turns out to not be the case, I turned on the light switch and the, the lamp didn't light. Oh no. The, the change in my expectation creates a kind of tension, which can make my subsequent decisions contextually distinct. Well, okay. Did the bulb just go out in the lamp that I need to replace? Did the lamp die? Is the outlet dead? Did I blow a fuse? Is the power out on the block? All of us, I mean, I'm, I'm making bigger hyperbolic examples, but I'm trying to illustrate this idea that the size of a decision is independent from its, its story importance, unless we're considering context and challenge along the way. But beyond that, a decision is a decision is a decision, and you have to plug and play with what is or isn't important about it. What a great chewy writery philosophy question. Love that. On we go to the next one. Question number six, what is overnaming? Overnaming is a really, really bad habit. It comes out of fan fiction circles 
it uh, and comic books. It's it's the idea that you don't want to keep saying the character's name over and over on the assumption that it's going to be boring or bad or wrong to read. So you come up with different ways of describing that character via proper nouns. Let's do a comic book example. You don't always call Superman Superman. Sometimes we call him, you know, the last son of Krypton or the man of tomorrow or Kal-El, something like that. Or Batman. Batman isn't always Batman. Sometimes he's the Dark Knight. Sometimes he's the Cape Crusader. Sometimes he's, you know, Gotham's warden. Sometimes he's the great detective. By swapping those things out randomly in the middle of a story that has nothing to do with identifying that character in a new way. Like if all of a sudden we're, we're telling a, a, a Superman story where, you know, it's, it's a story about just him and Lois Lane hanging out, just doing whatever. If we were to suddenly start calling him, you know, the man of tomorrow, when he and Lois are just like, I don't know, getting lunch somewhere, it's going to seem really weird to, to, to not just call him, Clark or Superman, because the name shouldn't be a big deal. And when we swap proper nouns or we go to proper noun phrases, like the last son of Krypton, we suddenly call attention to this thing. That's supposed to be fairly invisible. You have a name person listening to this right now. If I were to, you know, Always use your name in every sentence. Hi, name. How are you? Name. It's good to see you. Name. Hey, name. Do you have any questions? And we were just to, you know, bludgeon everybody else over the head with your name everywhere. Then, yeah, this would be a thing we could talk about. This could be a thing we would do something about. But since it's incredibly unnatural, think about the number of times you talk to your friends and your family. How often do you really use each other's names? It's not as much as you think. So overnaming is this, uh, this, this abuse of somebody's proper noun so that, you know, we're trying to illustrate like, look how creative I am. I have all these five names for Superman or in good for you. I'm, I'm happy you have all these names. Why do we have to keep using them? What's wrong with just calling him Batman? What's wrong with just calling him, you know, Steve or Kevin or whatever the hell his name is like it, it, you don't have to keep treading new and different ways. Like, so if we have this main, if we make up a character and we call him Kevin, cause I always create shitty examples with Kevin. If, if Kevin is like a serial cheater with, you know, he's the narcissist of our story. If, if I start, you know, having other characters for him as Mr. Cheater and narcissist man and, you know, good old narcissist Kev instead, when I could just choose to call him Kevin, because the sentence just needs to be a sentence on the page. And it's not this big giant moment of like, look, one character is recognizing another character by their nickname. The reason that just gets irritating. The reason why those nicknames stick out, the reason why those nicknames are rarely used is because they're indicative of a relationship. And if we just keep using them, we take the, the polish off that relationship. Overnaming is just trying to demonstrate excessive creativity by assuming that if I just keep saying Kevin or a character's name over and over, the reader will somehow be angry, but there's no reason to think so. Like there's no evidence for that. 
much like the word said, um, there's something in writing called the invisible said, which is the idea that after a while people don't get focusing, you know, they don't see the word said so much. They just focus on the dialogue. So I said, she said, he said, they said, they said, they said, he said, they said, they said, after a while, as long as there's dialogue between all those things, it kind of, you just, you kind of glaze over it, right? That's the invisible said. Names have somewhat of a similar kind of invisibility potential. After a while, you know, when we establish that there's multiple people talking, you don't always need to use their name. Overnaming is just running that that sound and that concept into the ground. Don't do it. More questions? Thank you, everybody, for being here. I'm watching the little counter. I know it's out of sync, but I'm watching the little counter go up. That's that's really very satisfying. Thank you so much. Means the world to me. I am trying to juggle a big thing of tea and a bottle of water and just clear off the desk. So forgive me as I just dump liquid in my face. Other questions, things, stuff? Shall we keep moving? Question number seven. If writing is the act of making decisions, what's revising? I am apparently known for saying that writing is the act of making decisions, which is a sentence that was drilled into my head starting in the late nineties that I have repeated with, um, near meditative mantra esque certainty because writing is making decisions. Oh my God. There's a question. Hang on. Apparently known. Yeah. Yeah. I am just known. I am always surprised when someone points out that that's the thing that most commonly comes out of my face for work. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I hear you. I see the face you're making. I get it. I am just flat up known and I got to own it. But there's a question in chat I want to answer. And then we'll go back to question number seven. Is writing a series of interconnected short stories like Sherlock Holmes and releasing each over a period of time still viable? Yes. Just yes. You can do that. Um, I mean, it's, it's not going to be the same as it was in the 1880s and 90s. But yeah, you can totally do it. Why not? It's very feasible. You just have to market them. Yeah, you can totally do that. Okay, back to question seven, where I am known, not apparently, no adverb. I'm just known for saying that writing is the act of making decisions. So, uh, yeah, writing is the act of making decisions because you get to choose what goes on the page. You decide. There's, there's no right. There's no wrong. There's what you choose. And you can't make a wrong choice. You can say it as less effective or less descriptive as you possibly could, but you're the author. You know best. It's your world. You wrote it down. That's what you mean. That's what we go with. Revising, though, is not the act of decision-making. Revising is the act of clarifying. Revising is the double check. Revising is the idea that we're going to make sure that you said whatever you said here. This is how you described the bedroom. This is how you described the car. Is that accurate? Is that as clear as you want it to be? I don't mean, is it said in the fewest number of words? I mean, like you said it was red. 
is it still a red car? Are you okay with that? You said this sentence about the, the two guys having a sword fight. Is that still an accurate representation of how you want the reader to picture it in their brain? Revi revision, revising, is about clarity. The thing to keep in mind is that you can't, no, I can't say you can't, you shouldn't skimp on it. I know a lot of writers will sit down and start noodling out their idea. They'll start making decisions. They'll have no problem making decisions because they've just got a really clear picture in their head and a very active imagination. And they write very enthusiastically and words hit the page like raindrops. It's just a flood, a torrent coming out of their face without judgment as to whether or not they're good or not good. They just get the idea out and they're very excited about it. And, and they don't really know when to stop. They don't really know when to pump the brakes. They don't really know when to slow down and kind of wrap up one thought and then move on to the next. They just get it all out, which is very, very admirable and very, very ideal. We love to see it. It's a good way, especially in first draft construction of just get it all out there and then we'll unfuck it later. Big thumbs up, big fan. But what that does is put them in a position to find the story through revision. Whether that's a word count issue of you have hundreds of thousands of words, you're supposed to have less than a hundred thousand words. Some shit's got to get cut. And maybe that's small little cuts like, Hey, we got to trim every third word out of this person's sentences, or we just have to cut the number of prepositions or adjectives or whether it's something substantial like, Hey, this whole subplot and all these characters got to go. It's easy for people to write because making decisions is very active. It's much harder to revise because in revision, you end up dealing with their reaction. I wrote that thing. I, I can't cut that. We can't cut that scene. We need that scene. That scene sets up vaguely kind of sort of the scene that happens in five chapters from now. It, it doesn't really, or they'll, they'll swear it does because they're emotionally attached to it. I like this scene. Can we leave it in? No, you got to get used to saying no to yourself. It sucks. I hate it. I hate having to do that, but learning to point out that a thing you wrote is Okay, it's it we don't only cut because it's bad or wrong. We cut because we just need to trim. Because we need to get something looking into it. We need to get something from one shape into another shape looking differently. Don't think of revision as correction. Revision is not correct. It is correction in the sense that we're fixing some errors, but that we should be doing that the entire time anyway. Look at revision in terms of how can I get focused on the idea in my head. And that means you get to sit down and you get to make more decisions. Okay. I've got this scene that the, the two cars pull up to the, to the, to the abandoned road late at night. It's a drag race during a thunderstorm. Cause apparently that's the scene John is describing right now off the top of his head. So when the next lightning bolt strikes the old tree down by the farm, that's where the two cars will take off. Revising is making sure that we create the tension and create the description and create the evocative nature, the immersive qualities of that scene. It isn't just imagining like, I guess one of those cars has a robot now, but it, it, I mean, I guess you could revise down to that, but it's more about making sure that the writing puts an idea on the page 
and the revising helps make that idea its best form and shape. Sometimes revising means taking words away. Sometimes it means adding words. Sometimes it means flipping some words around and swapping parts of a sentence. Move this over here and cut this and paste this here. That whole process is about clarification. Revising brings clarity. Writing brings decisions. I don't often say things like writing is the act of making decisions and revising is the act of bringing clarity because most everybody's just stuck on the first part. How do I do this? What do I do? Make a decision. Usually when I talk about revising with people, it's almost always you have too much. Let's make it smaller. Here's how. Rarely, nicely, but rarely do I run into somebody who's like, you need to put more words on this page. What are you trying to say here? It's unclear. And then we have to go kind of anti-revision and get into expansion, which uh, is back to writing. It's back to making decisions, but we're going to make more concrete decisions, more specific and small decisions. Don't just say it's a room. Put some furniture in it. What kind of room? What color is it? Where is it? And, and getting people to think that way for a lot of folks can be real uncomfortable, can be real difficult because... They know what it is in their head, but they're having trouble for whatever reason getting it out. Any number of reasons could be why. But the fix for that, the support for that is clarification. Okay, what's going on in this room? What are the characters doing here? What are they supposed to do? Is it easy or hard? Are there lights in this room? If I was sitting in this room, what would I see? Is a great question to ask first time, especially younger writers. Rather than just say, okay, you're in a bedroom, go. Okay, what do I see? What kind of bedroom? Big, small? Is the ceiling high or low? Is it ugly? Does the carpet suck? Does it smell in here? You, you start focusing and framing them on things, and the revision process becomes much more dynamic. When people write too much, says this question in chat, what are they typically writing too much of? Description. Oh, the suggestion is, is it too much description? Sometimes it's description. Sometimes we are taking 11 sentences to say a thing that we could say in two because you already said it, you know, like how many times are you going to tell me about how messy a room is? You already said it was messy. Let's, let's, let's move on. We don't have to draw extra attention to every inch in order to demonstrate. Over description is usually a demonstration of look how creative I am. I have all these ideas. I don't need all of the ideas. A way to think about that is if I were to ask you how your day was, hey, what did you do today? You would not likely recount for me on a minute by minute basis the stuff you did. And then I put my hand here and then I then I moved my foot. Then I moved my other foot. Then I turned slightly to the left. Then I bent my, you know, then I, I, I looked down. Then I blinked. You wouldn't detail everything. That kind of, I mean, that's absurd because I made it big for the example. But usually... Overwriting is description. When it's not descriptive overwriting, it's constructive overwriting. There's just too much shit going on. Characters go over there and they go over here and then they go over there and then they do this and then they talk to this person. Then they have the conversation about that. Then they have this other conversation about that. And while those things are nice and they, they illustrate that the writer can write dialogue or develop a scene or they can have events happen in a scene. And even that scene can have some tension. It could be a fight scene. It could be like a, like a, like a heavy duty conversation, but where it is in the story and what it's doing in the story 
doesn't matter. I could take it out. The, the question to ask when you're revising is, if I took this thing, whatever the thing is, a scene, a sentence, a chapter, a line, a word, whatever, if I take this thing out, what do I lose? And if the answer is you just lose this thing, but I don't, the plot doesn't have a hole in it. There's no major problem in tension. There's no like error. We're not, we're not breaking something down the road. Then you can cut it. You see this a lot. Like um, let's use Lord of the Rings, right? You can tell the Peter Jackson movies don't have Tom Bombadil. We cut Tom Bombadil. Out. We revised it down. Why? Because, yeah, you could argue, well, Tom Bombadil is one of the characters who can resist the lure of the ring. So we suggest to the reader, we suggest to the viewer possibly, that it's possible to, you know, lose or, or not be affected by the ring. Why do we cut him other than Tom Bombadil sucks? You cut him because you don't want to introduce that the ring can be resisted that early in the story because we don't want to deal with, you know, oh, well, just, just shrug it the fuck off, Frodo. What's the problem? You want to set it up so that we have a degenerative effect from the exposure to the ring. It gets harder and harder to resist. And if we just have this random detour where we go hang out with Tom Bombadil for a little bit, and then we get right back on track and it becomes this sort of detour we took, you can cut it. Constructive revision sort of eliminates detours in the story. We don't pull off over there and have a moment and then get back on the track. We, we cut those down. We focus the reader and we focus the characters on doing the stuff. And then along the way, in order because we've honed things forward, we can also pull additional description out. Like, do we need that extra paragraph about the horse? Do we, do we need to know about the nature of this waterfall and the backstory? You also get that for lore people, especially in fantasy novels. Holy shit. People want to tell you about like, here's the nature of a cannon. That was a scene of a battle 200 years ago. It's not going to come up again. There's not going to be a quiz at the end of the chapter, but you need to know I made this thing. You don't, you don't need to don't do that. It's, it's nice that you made it. Hooray. Good for you. I'm happy. That's wonderful. I'm genuinely proud of you. But right now we're telling a story, not about the thing you're talking about. So what's this doing here? It's always worth asking that question. On we go. Question eight. How do I get away from making hyperbolic claims in my marketing? Isn't that going to make my book sound less interesting? Well, okay. I get what you're saying. Social media would have us believe that the best way to stand out and the best way to be interesting and be, um, what's the capitalist sentence good enough for the consumer's dollar would be to make some kind of ridiculous, crazy claim. Like this is the best book of the summer. No, it's not. I guarantee you it's not because saying something hyperbolic suggests that there's a universal agreement. And I don't know if you know this, but it is, pretty damn hard to get two people to agree, let alone everybody agreeing. It, your book is not going to be less interesting because you didn't make some big sensational statement about it. If anything, 
you're going to have to work a little bit harder to figure out what your story, what your book, what your product is without hyperbole. When everybody, when, when people start marketing, people reach for hyperbole because it, it fills that need very quickly and sometimes very effectively. We are inclined to pay attention to hyperbolic things because they make the problem sound immediately solvable. Use the best carpet cleaner ever when your cat pukes on the rug. Clean, you know, never have a dirty plate again with our magic dish soap. Use the own, use this tool for all your hammer needs or whatever. We're wired for that because we're busy fixating on the problem. Oh, I, I do need a hammer and I do have a lot of things I could hammer if I had a hammer. Ah, my cat pukes all the time for whatever reason it doesn't, but we, it feels like it does because I'm thinking about it so much. I would be happy to have, you know, streak-free dishes because who wants streaks for some reason? If you get away from the hyperbole though, you have to figure out different ways, not so much of making your product interesting because it's not like hyperbole equals interest, but you have to be able to, established the claim of your books in such a way as to make them well-rounded. That's hard. Well, okay, let's be, let's be fair. If you've organized what you're trying to say and you've thought about more than one thing, it is not difficult. It's just that people reach for hyperbole so that they don't have to do other thinking. If I just call this thing gripping and sensational and I just keep you know, throwing those words into every pitch. Okay. I mean, you can, nothing wrong with that. But if, if I prohibit you from saying, don't call it gripping and don't say it's sensational, you gotta, you gotta put down those crutches you've been leaning on. You gotta get away from those shields you've been hiding behind. And a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people get very uncomfortable with that. So they think that if you strip the hyperbole away, you lose interest. And you don't, it just means you got to think a little bit more and you get away from hyperbolic claims, not only via conscious decision not to, but by thinking about more than like three ways to talk about a thing. Okay. You're writing a thriller. Sure. What if we didn't call it electrifying? You're writing a romance. What if we had more words to use than passionate hint? You have more words than electrifying and passionate when describing books. So. What else could we call it? Not just synonyms. Don't just, a lot of people when they have a, when they, when they're trying to remove hyperbole, just use a synonym. Like that's going to be okay. Don't call it passionate. Call it steamy. Yeah. That's the same thing. Like in, instead of putting on a red t-shirt, you put on a blue t-shirt when the, the thing to do was to not put a t-shirt on at all, put on a different shirt entirely. Instead of just trying to find one adjective or, or one phrase to constantly just use maybe one or, you know, I have this phrase and sometimes I have it with an extra word in there rather than use the same tired thing over and over and over again, take an afternoon and come up with different phrases. Yeah, sure. One time call it a steamy romance. What about, what about calling it a, uh, an engaging look at compassion? What if we called it sexy? Sexy and steamy are not the same words. Sexy and steamy connote two different things. Think about the book in more than one capacity. Think about the appeal of the book, the hooks of the book. Think about them in more than just the adjectives you're going to use. 
and it, it makes the process a little harder, but your book will actually end up sounding more interesting because you will have more words available to you to describe it. You don't need to use hyperbole. You just, you just don't. It, after a while, when you get, when you get more comfortable in talking about what you're talking about, the use of hyperbole seems dull. Like, oh, it's just lazy. You, you took the easy way out. You made some sensational claim and walked away. You didn't have to. You, you could have very easily like taken a hot minute and thought more. There's no rush. You don't need the hyperbole. Make an effort to do more than make the sensational claim. Practice. On we go to question nine. Ugh, I think I've answered this question like five times in the last four days. If I were to produce my own audiobook, what would I need to use and what would I need to know? Okay, first of all, you need to understand that this is not a thing you're going to be able to record with your default headphones, you know, with your iPhone. You can, but understand that there's a lot of other factors involved and this isn't something you want to do. And certainly don't give me that tech bro bullshit about, I'm going to use an AI generated voice. Don't just go away. Just GT the FO go, go all the way over there. Don't look, do you know why we make audiobooks? Do you know why audiobooks are things? They're not just things to have a product. Yes, I know a lot of capitalism says that, but audiobooks are intentionally designed for an audience who processes material in a non-text way. They are assistive devices. They are they are tools to grow your audience in a capacity beyond the page. For instance, audiobook readers might benefit, you know, they might benefit from audiobooks by being partially or poorly sighted. You know, they can't see good, so they listen to your book. They might be somebody who processes audio or imaginative material better through listening than reading. That's how you reach those people. Producing that audiobook should not be an exercise in glutting up the shelf virtually with more product for capitalism to happen. The point of an audiobook is to engage in a different way, whether that's a, an intentional decision or as a byproduct of a greater book deal. The goal is to reach people in an effective way. And in order to do that, you need to produce that book, that audiobook at a high quality. And you can't fake that high quality or fudge your way through that high quality and just say it's good enough because, because it's not. It's just not good enough to half-ass this. It reflects poorly on you. It reflects poorly on how you consider your reader and your audience. It reflects poorly on your general creative effort. If you're willing to half-ass it and suck, and not, not just be not good at it, but get better down the road, but if you're willing to just, you know, take a shortcut or deal with, you know, poor effort and say that's good enough. What does that say about the book overall? It's something to really consider. So you can't fake quality. And it's not as simple as just, I'm going to buy a $65 microphone, plug the USB port into my machine and just start reading flat. No, no. Voice acting is a trainable skill. 
reading audiobooks is a skill. It requires more than just one single voice. You've got to be able to make distinct vocal change in order to represent different characters. How do I tell one character apart from the other with only your voice as the tool? Can you do an accent? Can you do multiple accents? Can you make your, can you give your voice a more masculine or feminine presentation? Can you do it in a way where your expositive voice, the voice you read for reading exposition is different than the voice for your child character in the third act. You've got to have mastery of those things. And this is not something you can just casually do spitting into your USB mic every couple hours on a Saturday or whatever. Second thing you need to know. Well, maybe third thing you need to know. Don't just read your damn book. This isn't a case of like, um, okay. So, so page four on word says this, and then I'm, I'm going to just, no, this isn't a thing where we can just hastily slap this together. You're going to need a proper recording space, preferably soundproofed. The room I'm in is not soundproofed and I can hear it in the recordings on playback, but I don't have the means by which to, you know, foam all the walls and carpet everything all the time. And, and I have a decent, but not perfect microphone setup, and I pay for it. it I, the work suffers at times. That said, if I were to do just speaking full time, which I can do, I would take the closet behind me. I'd throw everything out of it. I would pack it with foam. I would get a different microphone with a much longer cable and a dedicated machine to plug it into. And I would just do it that way. Sa excess sound and airflow and echo are your enemies for audio production. And then be up. See, this is the problem because all of a sudden the robot picks up in the background and it kind of just sort of shreds everything. So we're going to wait 10 seconds while that just, I'm going to talk over the robot. I should have unplugged. I thought I did. I'm very sorry. Things that affect sound ruin audio production just a lot. And you want to control them as much as possible. And yeah, you can do it in a free program like audacity. You could, that said, if you're trying to do a higher quality thing, you need a higher quality product. You want to use a, a digital audio workstation, a digital audio workspace, a DAW uh, reaper is a great, you know, affordable thing. It's way cheaper than pro tools. It's way cheaper than logic or audition. But as you scale up in tech, as you scale up in price, you're going to get more bells and whistles and it's going to be easier to edit. And I would strongly advise you that if you're going to record your own shit, you know, you're, you're going to have to learn how to engineer that stuff or hire an engineer or an editor to trim that down. Because much like writing a first draft, a first draft audiobook sounds like shit. No one is expecting you to write or record a perfect audiobook on the first take. Just not, just not, not a thing. Beyond that, expect it to take about a as long as a day job. It is not un the 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 general thumb rule is for every one hour of intent. All right, let's do it from the text perspective because that'll make more sense to you. Every chapter of your book is about six to 10 hours recorded because you're going to do multiple takes and you're going to ideally have to re-record certain sections to do different voices or changes in intonation. So it's not uncommon for a, let's say, 
30 chapter audiobook to get edited down to 12 hours, but it might take 48 hours worth of recording to do. Usually you take a book's finished runtime, multiply it by three or four, and then that'll tell you the rough, like the draft recording size. And that's finished hours of product. That doesn't count the number of hours it took you to edit the book down from, you know, four hours for chapter one down to a 35 minute chapter one. It's a process that requires skill and care and just speeding along to go, oh, I have an audiobook. I have an audiobook. I have an audiobook. Look at my series. Look at my books on my shelf. Look at all the product, 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 capitalism, capitalism, capitalism does not help. Like it, it reflects poorly on you. It's sort of like saying, sure, I have a ton of comics and mostly it's you with a pen and a post-it note. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying it's impossible for you to do it. I'm saying that you should strongly, 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 strongly hire people to help you. And also one more note, if I can just kind of throw that in here. Um, if, if you're the kind of person who is asking me about audiobooks because you won't fucking sit down and finish your first draft, you are wasting everybody's time. I understand that it's real fun to daydream about I'm going to record an audiobook. I'm going to get this shit done. It's going to be big and fancy. I'm going to get a famous person to read it. Listen to me very carefully. And believe me when I say this with my whole New Jersey chest. Damn, son, you got to finish the first draft before we're out here talking about the audiobook. You're on step two. Step one was have an idea. Step two is write a draft. You're talking about step 60. Just because you're embarrassed, scared, frustrated, tired of step two. Look where you're at. Finish that first. You can't do that. There's no point talking about anything else. On we go. Are there any questions about anything? Okay. Shall we keep going? Let's. Question 10. I have been waiting all day for this question. Question 10. Help me get started with some cyberpunk world building. Where do I begin? Oh, we're going to learn a new method of world building right now. Here we go. So normally when I talk about world building, I tell you to come up with rules for your world. That's called the structural rule method of world building. There's no test on the end of this. Just don't worry about the name. But there's, there's a value in coming up with the rules of the world. Because the rules of the world allow you to see where different groups of people, because we move from rules to to groups, where different groups sit and how they interact, if at all. It's a great way for focusing around conflict between specific groups. Example. Uh, here are the corporations, the mega corporations versus the rebellious shadow runners who operate in the in the alleyways and, and late at night to hack into corporations and steal their data group against group, because there are rules of the world that say stuff like corporations control everything people to have a demand for knowledge. Great. 
that's fine. I love doing, I love building stuff that way, but it's not the only way. Now we're going to do a different way. Now we're going to look at thematic world building. You want to try and summarize the whole of your world into a philosophical statement. Not a, not a constructive descriptive statement. Like it's dark and everyone wears leather when it rains. That's a descriptive statement. We want to summarize it down to a thematic statement. The world is fundamentally unfair, but people stand a chance if they believe. That's a thematic statement. That's a philosophical statement. You can relieve yourself of suffering by believing in a power greater than yourself. Thematic statement. And why we boil things down to a philosophy or to an idea and why that's great for cyberpunk is because cyberpunk is a very statement-driven genre. It's a statement between control and not control and power and abuse of power and have and have not and tech versus, you know, scarcity versus, you know, control versus freedom versus hope and not hope. And you can break it down into a lot of different binaries that are all thematic in nature. And then you dress up each side of the binary to suit your aesthetic. The corporations all wear suits and ties and everybody else is wearing like dirty overalls. In a thematic construction, you don't have to be limited to the binary though. You can yeet the binaries into the sun. Sure, you can have corporations versus, you know, the the upstart rebels looking to overthrow and change everything, but you can add third parties into the mix. What about the people who revere the corporations as you know, deific beings as, as you know, we, we pray to the God of Pepsi because, uh, Pepsi provides for us in a social or financial or, or whatever kind of way. And therefore the actions of the people who break into Pepsi to loot their corporate secrets are, you know, heretics who need to be hunted but also the corporation doesn't want people worshiping Pepsi because when you worship Pepsi, maybe you don't end up buying enough. So you're poor capitalists now in a thematic construction, you end up creating complexity and potential conflict out of either agreement or disagreement or interest or disinterest in the thematic statement. And by framing a thematic statement, you get to question it's positive and it's opposite or something totally perpendicular to it. You want to take cyberpunk into a theme more than an aesthetic because the aesthetic is malleable. You can have cyberpunk where people don't wear leather trench coats. You can have cyberpunk where it doesn't rain all the time. That's one flavor of, you can have cyberpunk without corporatocracy. You can just have the punk element of a, of a techno heavy world, not be corporate in nature. You can, it's occasionally difficult and requires extra steps like reducing your tech level. Diesel punk is a flavor of cyberpunk without corporation. Hope punk is a flavor usually devoid of corporation but you end up in a situation where your theme matters so that no matter what you do with your aesthetic, no matter what rules, no matter what characters you build, your theme is the biggest deal. So take your world, 
take your character, take your journey, take the conflict, take whatever part you have and figure out how to express it in a philosophical statement. If I'm a person in this world, today's day one for me, what would you tell me as a new person in this world about how the world works? Don't give me plot. Don't give me lore. Don't tell me about the time. Then the mountain exploded and everybody got hit in the face with circuit boards. I'm in this world. What do I need to know? Don't give me lore. Don't give me plot. How do I survive in this world? What should I believe? Start there. And then understand that every one of those elements, every single one of those elements, all the things you just talked about, the theme, the concept, the problem, the social groups, all those stuff, all those things, they all get aesthetics. They all get rules. They all get conflicts. They all get goals. They all get wants. They all get fears. And the world grows out from there. That's how you build a world. In cyberpunk and fantasy and sci-fi and alternate history, arguably in a romance novel, although usually the world in a romance novel is designed to suit the potential attraction between characters. But all the rules apply. Good question. On we go. Question 11. Can I use a title from my unpublished and unfinished trunk novel on my debut novel? Yes. Now, this is, this is one of those questions where it's like, I'm over and done, I said yes, and that's it. But I want to explain why this question made the list. There's a, a lot of fuss in some corners of writing spaces about titles. Titles have to be a certain way or all the current popular books have a certain kind of title. Usually it's a prepositional phrase of three to four words of X and Y or the Z of Q or something or A of B or something like that. And it's dull as shit. It's actively irritating how just monotonous these things sound and how hard it is to tell them apart from one another. Oh, is that the book where the elves are, are Renaissance painters? No, that's the one where the elves are uh, uh, bourgeois. Oh, no, that's the one where the elves uh, have uh, extreme sports. Or, oh, that's the one with the people who worship the dead. No, that's the one where they fear the dead. No, that's the one where they're just dead. And, and people think that the title is a major discriminatory factor. Oh, I can tell the book apart because that's, the, that's the, the court of sunshine. That's not sunshine's court. Sure, sure. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, great. If your book is unpublished and unfinished and it's just hanging out in your folder and no one knows it's there, you can use that title again. Go ahead. The rules so many people swear are rules on social media about how books should be or how titles should be. Most of them, most of that stuff, most of that content, are, are, it's generated by people who are talking straight out their ass, who are just making shit up because content fuels content. Art need not apply. So they're going to tell you that, oh, no, 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 it's, an, it's, a, it's a trunk novel. It's done. You can't touch the title. Who gives a shit? Who's going to know? And if they do know, why would they care? 
oh, I, this was the novel originally. Like, this is the title from the novel that I, I first wrote six years ago that, you know, became this novel. Okay, great. Originally, this title had an extra article in it. Okay, fine. Sure. Does it, does it change the nature of our day? Do we suddenly care? It's not a big deal. You can use whatever title you want at any time, whenever. It's fine. On we go. Question 12. What's the one thing writers say that absolutely frustrates you? Meaning me. Um, I am routinely, routinely frustrated by writers talking to me about how fast or slow their book is happening. Because, and I, I talk about this in the podcast this week, um, it, it only bothers you. And I'm sorry it bothers you. But you're the only one expecting a certain rate of production here. The reader down the road when your book is done, the reader is not going to stop and go, gosh, I wonder if it took them, you know, five extra days to write chapter three. But that's not a thought readers have. Do you have that thought when you read books? I wonder how long it, I mean, other than like a passing curiosity, I wonder how long this movie took to shoot. But on a, on a regular basis, do you stop and think this paragraph I really liked? I wonder if it, if it took them 10 minutes or 12 minutes. No one thinks in terms of time except the person who's using time as a way of assuming to measure quality. I must be good at this, so it can't possibly take me very long. And the fact that it's taking me a long time means I must be doing something wrong or that I'm not good enough. There is no basis in reality for that statement. I don't know what you're talking about. It takes as long as it takes because of the expectations and the pressure you put on yourself, as well as just the, the time you spend doing it. This isn't a case of like the, the effort expands to fill the time. If you say it takes 20 minutes, you'll do it in 20 minutes because that's the amount of effort you put in. That's not what I mean. I mean, when you are huddled over your book, trying to get every word and every sentence to be the word and be the sentence in this space, Flawlessly. And the minute you change one thing, there's a cascading ripple effect 300 sentences later because everything has to demonstrate that this is right and good. It's a first draft. It's okay if it's imperfect. Your quality and innate talent and goodness as a human who creates things does not suddenly disappear because, you know, you've got to write a second draft. Or, oh my God, it's taking so long. Oh, okay. Did you have somewhere to be? You got a hot date? Uh, I tell this story in the podcast that I ask that people, I ask all the time, what's the rush? Are you dying? I had one person in 25 years actually say, yes, I'm dying. And I'm pretty sure they weren't dying. I think they were just saying, because uh, my question pulled focus away from them complaining about how long it was taking and how hard their life was. And, um, I'm sorry, they're having a hard life. I don't know if they're actually dead or not. I don't know if they're still running around social media trying to be this, the ringleader of a three-ring circus of bullshit. But um, I don't know why 
anybody would pressure themselves about how long something is taking when there's no deadline. You, you, you're a good person. You're making a thing. Wondering if it's taking too long. I understand impatience because you keep thinking about the end result. I want to get paid faster. So let me finish this thing sooner. But usually these fears about time also crop up in situations where people are afraid of the response they're going to get. Gosh, I hope somebody likes my book. Well, then why are you rushing so much to, to get it out there? If you're worried that people are going to hate it, take your time, do your best job. Somebody, when I've said this before and somebody got real, real cranky and we're like, well, yeah, but you get paid by the hour. So you're, you're going to tell them to take their long time. Cause that means you'll get paid more. Uh, no. Um, if that were the case, oh man, if that were the case, I, I'd certainly be in a different financial position than I'm in right now. Too often when people worry about time, it's because they're used to seeing good things they do well, not take very long and hard things they suck at or hard things they shouldn't be doing take a while. So that must be universally true and must apply to everything they make or happen. And, um, that's not the case. If a thing takes you a while and you're doing your best, not like you're half-assing it or dragging or just like every couple minutes, oh, I guess I'll type another word. But if you're really committed to trying, then it's okay if it takes a while. You can get better at it. And yes, over time, if you improve your effort and if you improve your practice and if you push yourself, because it's not going to spontaneously take less time without your input, it will go faster, but you have to care. And it's not about demonstrating good enoughness. You don't have to try and be perfect. You don't have to try and win favor from specific people who are looking to deny you. Like, I think, I think in the podcast, I, I talk about how you're not, you don't have to try and make your dad proud. You just have to write a book. You don't have to like try so much. It's okay. Just do your best for you, not for them. And you'll get better at writing. And if it takes a while, then it takes a while. It, it's not suddenly better for going faster. This isn't, is that, is that, um, it's the Will Ferrell Talladega nights where, you know, you got to go fast, got to go fast. You don't have to go fast. Don't go fast. It's not a race. Do your best. Don't make it about time. Are you proud of the thing you made? Did you try your best? Great. If so, awesome. No one else cares about speed but you. You don't have to let it be a thing. That's what frustrates me with writers. On we go to our 13th and final question. And I saved a heavy one for 13. Do you worry, meaning me, do I worry that I'm in my own way when it comes to growing my business? Yes. So this question comes up with a lot of writers who are looking to have a long-term career. They have a goal of, I want to publish multiple books. I want to make a career out of this. I want to pay my mortgage with my book sales. I want to have a book deal. I want to, you know, big lofty goals, not just make a thing once and then never do it again. And they architect this concept of how that's going to be. And they, they diligently 
plot along with it. And then when their fear or anxiety crops up, it can have a tremendous paralyzing effect. Everything's going along great. And they realize like, oh shit, somebody's going to have to read my book. I might get a rejection letter. I might get, you know, not as many stars as I think. Somebody might dislike me and dislike my work. So they, they change or alter the way they do things so that they can protect themselves in some way, shape, or form from criticism. Well, if I take a while writing this draft, then I push the response of other people down the road. I don't have to deal with that right now because, you know, I'm still writing the draft. People can reject me later. I'll deal with that later. That can be tomorrow me's problem. That happens a lot. That happens a lot to a lot of us. That happens a lot to me. One of the most common things I've heard in the last three months is how come more people don't know about you? And um, part of that is simple. I was setting up the broad, like the, the, the announcement of new posts and new material. I was setting that up poorly. I didn't know that unchecking a certain box when I post a YouTube video is actually better for me. Um, I didn't know that I had to have that explained to me. Now I know that actually did make a difference, but beyond that, yeah, I do worry I'm in my own way because I, I just had a conversation with somebody the other night about how, like what I do is different than how other people do things. Other people say they're coaches and they coach differently, like very much differently than I do. And other people do, you know, somewhat expensive zoom things or Facebook trainings or, or other expensive shit and they sell a product and then they, they just sort of walk away and they give very pat advice and, and they just cash in and they do it very effortlessly. And I don't know if they're possessed with the same amount of self-doubt or anxiety that I am, but they, they do love to tell you that, Oh, I made $300,000 on Facebook this week. Or, oh, I just bought my, you know, family this or just took them over there for that. And that's fine. Like, good for them. I'm happy. They're good. That's nice. But um, they're not recognizing that you can be in your own way. You can have a hard time. This isn't a sign of I shouldn't be doing this. I've been doing this my entire life pretty much. But yeah, I do worry that I'm in my own way. I do worry that my fear of response or fear of rejection or fear of speaking into the void and having no one notice or fear of being told um, that I'm, I'm too narcissistic, too selfish, too shallow, too shitty, whatever, that I'm being held to the standard I was 20 years ago when I was drunk and high all the time. Anything like that sticks in my head. So yeah, absolutely. I think I worry a lot about, you know, the, why, am, why am I always having trouble finding food? Why am I dumpster diving? Why am I, you know, hitting goodwill up? Is it, you know, why, why don't I just get like a real job and, and you know, whatever. And yeah, it's because it's shit scary. It's hard. And, and yeah, maybe part of this is me thinking I have to, put myself in a position to be an underdog, to win you over, to try and demonstrate to you that I'm good enough because that's not that dissimilar from a writer writing their guts out and then trying to just prove that their book is good enough compared to everybody else because they grew up with a complete deficit of self-esteem. So maybe that's a factor. Who knows? But the, 
the way you resolve this, the way you deal with this, the way you poke this stuff with a stick is courage and hope. And those two things are very, very hard to deal with because hope seems foolish in the face of anxiety and courage seems scarce in the face of other people's criticism. And what you have to navigate when it comes to planning out that long-term career or when it comes to doing more than just, how do I write a good sentence? Is understanding that the good in that good sentence comes not from you choosing the best adjective or knowing how to use an M dash, which is a thing no one should give a shit about, but it comes from the idea that you did your best and you're proud and you're allowed to be proud of your work and you're allowed to do your best and you're allowed to be successful. And giving myself that permission has been really difficult. And there are times I rescind it and I mope and I sulk because it's scary. I don't see enough people in writer adjacent spaces, whether we're talking about writers helping writers on Substack or whether we're talking about people in Facebook groups, people on discords or, or book talk. I don't see people talking about this. They just want to tell you about the book they're selling or how this rock video from the nineties really reflects the mood or some dumb shit like that. Fear is a major component of creativity, either as fuel or barrier or co-pilot. It is definitely something you have to grapple with. And if you don't grapple with it as it comes up, it will double down and be an obstacle later. That is what I have learned in 25 years. I do worry I'm in my own way. I do worry that I will never have so, so right now I, I have 37 active clients. I want to get to 40. I don't want to get to 40 by the end of the year. That's unrealistic. But, um, I want like my, my major goals right now, I'd like a hundred subscribers to my newsletter because that number seems huge. Um, I'm at 97, I think. Um, I'd like two more listeners to the podcast. And at some point I would like to do something streaming where I get more than five people. I'd like to get to six. At one point I had 15 when I was streaming consistently and I want to get back there and it's hard because it's hard. Um, those are my goals. I state them. I chase them. I do what I can to develop for them. I think that kind of clarity is what you need to develop courage. To not be metrics-driven, to not be fear-driven, is to push back against the inertia and momentum of how things are, which is scary. I do worry I'm in my own way, but I tell myself when I get real worried about that, I tell myself I can point to people I have helped, like by name. And I can tell you something about them. Oh, this person, they just did this. Oh, that person, they just published that. I just talked to them the other day and, and it was a nice conversation. It made me happy. I don't know if my colleagues, peers, competitors can do that. Maybe they can. Maybe they do it just in a marketing way. But I, I give a shit about my people. I think that matters to me. It didn't always. Now it does. But I don't think that's the reason I'm in my own way. I think I'm in my own way because I'm afraid. 
And I think grappling with that fear is something we all need to talk more about. Not just my fear, like your fear. I, I think it would change the nature of how we build a system that allows us to produce art. But we don't talk about it enough, and I would love to. There should probably be more podcasts about that, more substacks about that, more whatever about that. We should get out of our salesy shit and be people again. That's where my head's at right now with that question. Um, I'm sure it will be in a different place in 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, three minutes, who knows? But yeah, I do worry I'm in my own way. And I worry that writers get in their own way all the time. And I am still looking for ways to get all of us out of those ways. Yeah, that's my package on that one. Are there any other questions about any other thing for any other stuff? Whenever I get to the heavy questions, I watch the audience disappear. It's interesting. To me. It's interesting to me because I know I'm talking about a thing that matters when everybody bails. Because it matters to me and I know it'll reach the people it needs to reach as it needs to reach them. Well, that's just me. That's always how I viewed things. Still here. It matters. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Shall we get out of here? Have we had enough? I've run out of tea and I've run out of water. So let's get out of here. And what else do I have today? I do have more work today. Holy shit. Okay. And it's two. Wow. An hour and 40. Like we're back in the old days. Cause a couple times we've only been doing this for an hour now, an hour and 40. Ooh, feels good. All right. Let's get out of here though. To the outro. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking this out. It means the world to me. This is one of my favorite parts of the week. Uh, it's one of the happiest times of the week because I like talking. I always do. Thank you for your questions about writing and cyberpunk and world building and character building and short form, short stories and poetry and everything in between it means the world to me. Uh, the next time I'm here in your eyes and in your ears, there are holidays coming up. I've been so informed. So it is very likely that next week, the 19th will be the last stream of 2024. Um, I don't know yet for more details and more clarification. When I figure my shit out, head over to John helps and sign up for the newsletter where I will, you know, regularly weekly make announcements as to who's doing what, when, where, and why. But it, it's looking more and more like the 19th will be the last writer's chat of 2023 and maybe the last stream of the year. I don't want it to be the last stream of the year. I want to do more shit. I just don't know about chats during the day. I don't know. Stay tuned for that. Uh, if you like this, if you liked anything I've said or anything I, I've done, feel free to support everything by going to patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. The entire, uh, pile of everything I've ever made is up on youtube.com forward slash John Adamus. And, uh, for all your podcasty needs, head over wherever you get your podcasts and search for John helps you write better. If you're watching this on YouTube in the future, don't forget to like subscribe and click the bell for notifications because that's what the algorithm demands. I tell you and all power to all people until then, until the next time we speak, be kind, just do something good for yourself and then good for something for somebody else. 
you're good enough to succeed. I believe in you. I love you. And I'll talk to you very, very soon. See ya.